Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, Lord, for the blessed Sabbath day. As we come to worship you, as we come to seek your word and seek your face, Lord, may you please speak so tenderly, so clearly to each and every one of us. Help us to understand the message for this morning. But more than that, help us to understand how it applies to each and every one of our lives as well. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the title of our sermon this morning is 10 Kilometers from Christ. And the question I have for you to start off is, how long does it take for you to run 10 kilometers? I'm not a good runner. My knees are bad. I have flat feet. And I remember a charity run that I did about five years ago. We had to run six kilometers, okay, six kilometers. And it took me about 15 minutes. I remember some people took about 20, 25 minutes. And uh, some can run 10 kilometers easily in an hour. Definitely not me. Um, but if you were to walk, and the average person walks about four kilometers per hour, if you were to walk just a fast walk, you would probably be able to walk 10 kilometers in about two hours. And we can definitely do it in one day for sure. And, you know, they say that the distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem is approximately 10 kilometers. And you got to be careful. I looked this up in Google Maps and uh, there are two Bethlehems that you got to be careful of. Okay, there's one that's just south of Jerusalem, which is where Jesus was born. And there's one up in Galilee, which is north. And so, you know, Bethlehem, it is about 10 kilometers from Jerusalem. And it is a small town compared especially to the city of Jerusalem, which is the center of the whole country back then. Um, but one of the most important events in human history took place about 2,000 years ago surrounding these two cities. And you know what I'm talking about. It's the birth of Christ. And even as we are in the Christmas season, look friends, I know that Christ was not born on December 25. We all know that. But especially during this festive season where everybody is thinking about the birth of Christ, it is a good time to reflect on this story, to go back and look at a couple of stories surrounding this event, and especially one that we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 2. Let's start there, shall we? Matthew chapters 2 and starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophets, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. In this story that we see leading up or surrounding the, 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 uh, the events of Christ's birth, we see that there are three groups of people mentioned here. First is the wise men, and they came looking for the Redeemer, the King of the Jews. Then the second person we see there is Herod, who is the current King of the Jews. And thirdly, we see the Pharisees 
and the scribes. And I want to look at these three groups this morning to see how it applies to us today, to help us to understand even the situation that we're looking at as we are waiting not the first coming of Christ, but the second coming. So let's start with the wise men. Look, we don't know much about them at all. We don't know where they came from, but yet they were just following a star wherever it led them. And they had been studying the stars and the writings of Balaam. In fact, he wrote about this in Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17 when he was trying to curse the children of Israel and instead he uttered a blessing altogether. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. So he gave this prophecy that there would a star come out of the children of Israel, or the star of Jacob. And so these wise men were looking at the stars. They were astrologers. They were looking at the heavens, looking for something different. And they saw a star that was not an ordinary star, that was not part of the solar system that they were used to seeing up there in the heavens. And so they decided to follow the star as it began to move. And look at what the pen of inspiration talks about this. In The Desire of Ages 59, paragraph 3. The light of God is ever shining amid the darkness of heathenism. As these magi studied the starry heavens and sought to fathom the mystery hidden in their bright paths, they beheld the glory of the Creator. Seeking clearer knowledge, they turned to the Hebrew Scriptures. In their own land were treasured prophetic writings that predicted the coming of a divine teacher. Balaam belonged to the magicians, though at one point a prophet of God. By the Holy Spirit, he foretold the prosperity of Israel and the appearing of the Messiah, and his prophecies had been handed down by tradition from century to century. But in the Old Testament, the Savior's advent was more clearly revealed. The Magi learned with joy that His coming was near, and the whole world was to be filled with a knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And so these wise men took off, following this star that appeared in the heavens. And according to this star that we just read in Matthew chapter 2, this star would lead them first to Jerusalem. The question that I have as we pause here for a second is, why didn't the star lead them straight to Bethlehem? Why did it have to lead them to Jerusalem first? Jesus wasn't there. And in fact, it was more discouraging for them to go to Jerusalem, something that the wise men didn't deserve because their enthusiasm for finding the king of the world was doused a bit and could have been brought to doubt uh, more than helping them. In all outward appearances, there was no benefit for the wise men to make a pit stop at Jerusalem before heading on to Bethlehem. Their experience was all negative. You see, many times, friends, when I have to make decisions, I like to write on a whiteboard or a piece of paper the pros and cons, like coming back to Malaysia from Taiwan. What were the pros of coming back here? What were the cons of coming back here? You know, what was the pros of staying in Taiwan? What were the cons of staying in Taiwan? I'd like to write all these things down to make sure that you make a clear and informed decision, logical decision. Um, the straightest path to what you want to achieve, uh, choosing the best option and making the wisest decision for your life, right? 
Well, with the wise men, when you write down the pros and the cons of why they followed the star to Jerusalem, there was no advantage. There was no pros. It was all cons. It was all negative. It was all discouraging to them. Number one, Jesus wasn't there. Number two, Noah's, no one was interested in what they were looking for. And more than anything else, they would find pretense and insincerity there. A sure way to make someone leave the church and leave Jesus altogether. We don't know how it really impacted them. But what we do know is that the reason why God led um, the wise men to Jerusalem is He was trying to give the Jews a chance a chance to wake up from their slumber, a chance to have their eyes opened that the Savior was born right down the road from where they were. God was trying to witness to His own people and He was trying to save them. You know, sometimes you might reflect on your life or maybe even now you're in the midst of it. You're looking at your life or you look back at your life and you look at this current situation and it makes no sense why you're going through what you're going through and you're wondering why God is leading you down this path. You're trying to assess your situation and it just makes no sense. And in fact, it seems like an utter waste of time. Well, you're in good company because that's exactly what happened to the wise men. God made them take a detour for no apparent reason at all, just down the road from Bethlehem. And this is the first lesson that we can learn from the wise men here in Matthew, that God doesn't always do things just for your benefit. You know, God is the ruler of the world and He has in His hands 8 billion lives and He has to make sure that every person has a chance to come to know God. And so sometimes He allows you to take a detour from the aims, the goals, the, the processes of your life just so that you can help somebody else. Just so that you can give a chance for someone else to be saved. And on top of that, when we look at this picture in Matthew chapter 2, okay, no one really is benefited by the visit of the wise men in Jerusalem there. When they leave Jerusalem, the people that they leave behind are in the same condition as when they first appeared, or maybe even worse. It seemed like, as I said, an utter waste of time. There was no benefit whatsoever. And this is just where we have to trust God, friends, and hold on because only when we see clearly in heaven will we understand the intricate workings and the mysteries of how God guides each and every person and how He's giving chances for every person to be saved. He sent the wise men to Jerusalem just simply to be a witness. They were looking for someone and something, but they didn't find Him there. And God knew that. The star led them there just simply to be a witness. So the next time you're in the midst of a situation in your life that you don't know what you're going through, friends, just hold on and trust God. Yet the wise men, they didn't lose hope. They would eventually leave that city and see the star in the sky again and it would lead them this time to the King of the Jews and the Savior of the world. So that's the first group, the wise men. The second group that we want to look at is King Herod. 
He was the king at that time, the king of the Jews. And when the wise men came searching for Jesus, they didn't ask for a savior actually. What were they asking for? Look at this, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2, saying, Where is he that is born what? King of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. They were looking for the king of the Jews and Obviously, they weren't looking for the king that was standing right there before them at that point to worship him. And so what happened? What happened? King Herod says in verse 3, well, this is what happens. King Herod, um, he heard all these things. He was troubled and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Why? Probably because he was a tyrant. He was not a just king. And when the king is troubled, people get in trouble, you see. And so he asks where this king would be born. He turns to the Pharisees and the scribes and immediately they give an answer. Why? Of course, in Bethlehem. And they quoted scripture right there and then to him. They knew it off the top of their heads, you see, friends. But instead of being excited about this new king, what does Herod say to the wise men? Matthew chapter 2 and verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. Did he really want to worship the king of the Jews that was born in a manger and in a stable? Of course not. He had an air of pretense about him, a pretense that he actually wanted to go and worship this king. But it was all fake. His response does not reveal the true intents of his heart, that he actually hates this new king and wants to go and kill him. King Herod, he represents all those that are troubled by the news of the arrival of Jesus. Well, who could that be? Well, that's us, friends. Our plans, our lives, that we be disturbed by the presence of Jesus. The unwilling sacrifices that would have to be borne plans that would have to be put aside to make room for this new king. Jesus was coming in as king of the world, but they already had this king, King Herod. And self is that king in our hearts today, friends. Self is what takes supremacy in our own lives and in our own hearts. Self is that which had have to be uprooted and supplanted if we are to make way for the king of the world Jesus Christ today. Self would have to be dethroned and removed from top priority just to make room for Jesus our Savior. And it rightly represents us because we have this pretense about our relationship with Jesus sometimes. Do you know that? We have this pretense sometimes that we actually love Christ. We go to church, we sing hymns, we sing these praise songs, we greet each other happy Sabbath and we deceive ourselves. Because in fact, many times, self rules. We already have a king and that king is our self, our life, our studies, our work, our wants, our needs, our money, our hobbies, the things that we like to do. And when the Sabbath comes and tells us to put aside our pleasures and our work and our labor, the things that we love to do, it's difficult. But many are pushed forward by tradition to spend those two hours on Sabbath uh, in church and have a bit of a lunch. And then right after that, we run off back to our own lives. 
We like to have our naps. We like to do the things that we like to do. We like to have our social time. And Sabbath becomes a drag because God says you cannot do these things. And it's difficult because self, the king, is alive in our hearts. You see, many of us, we don't realize that we have a King Herod in our hearts. And that's why following Jesus is such a painful experience to us because the king that is there is unwilling to budge. And these two kings are always at war with each other, friends. Do you have a King Herod in your heart today? During this Christmas season, has it been this focus of self? You know, although I get, uh, to be honest, I get a bit worried sometimes wishing people Merry Christmas, because I don't know which person is going to come up to me and say, Pastor, Christmas is not biblical. You know, I don't have a problem with saying it, but I want to make sure I don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody. You know, I don't think that there's anything wrong with having a Christmas tree. I really don't. The pen of inspiration, Ellen White, talks about Christmas tree in the home. Ah, it's all pagan, and we like to quote Bible texts, one found in Isaiah or Jeremiah, wherever it is. But, you know, that doesn't talk about the Christmas tree, friends. We've got to be careful. Just having a Christmas tree in the home does not mean that you're making it an idol. But the problem with the season of Christmas sometimes is it is all focused on self, about the presents that I get. Do you see that? About the food that I'm going to eat, about the vacation that I'm going to go on. And so many times, Christmas, where we are meant to be reminded about Christ, is not about self, but about others that are less fortunate. Is there a King Herod in your heart this morning? I want to go to that last group, the priests and the scribes. They were the ones that are, were the counselors of King Herod when he was troubled and said, tell me, where is this king, the king of the Jews, meant to be bought, uh, born? And this group is the most interesting of all. Why? Because they are the religious leaders of the city and of the church. And when Herod is troubled and asks where this king should be, without hesitation, they're able to quote scripture. In verses 5 and 6, they say to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophets, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. It's really interesting that they know the prophecies and they're able to quote it off the top of their heads. And yet, they are never moved by them. The question that I really have in my mind is, why didn't the priests and the scribes go to Bethlehem? If they were able to quote it, and they knew where Jesus was born, they knew the location, they knew the scriptures, why didn't the scriptures have the power to move them to go to Bethlehem for themselves? Why did they just stay there, right there in Jerusalem? I mean, it's only 10 kilometers down the road. Do you see that? Why is it that they didn't even want to go and look for themselves? Why didn't they even just walk a couple of hours to check if he had really been born? Why? Maybe they were thinking this, friends. I'm the religious leader. I'm the one that should know. I'm the scholars of prophecy and of Scripture. If and when the Savior comes to this world, surely he will come to us first, right? Surely, I will be the one 
that would know and lead the charge, lead the whole city to come and worship this new king. So they're standing there looking at these wise men, people of different religion, announcing that they're coming to look for the king of the Jews. They must have been thinking, the scribes and the Pharisees, they must have been thinking, these men, they're mistaken. They're just on a wild goose chase. For them, there was no announcement. There was no special time given. And there was no angel that came to them to let them know about the Savior's birth. So maybe these people from different religion, they were just barking up the wrong tree. They were just confused about the Scriptures. Surely they themselves would know when and where the Savior would be born. They had the location. They knew the Scripture. They were just waiting for announcement from heaven to them. And so, they did not go. Anyone else coming in that would know, especially from different religion, they must be mistaken, right? And so that was really the problem, friends. It was a matter of pride. The Redeemer of this world would not pass us by, right? We wouldn't be the first to know. Surely these heathen men from a different country and apostate religion altogether, they would not be the first ones to know. So their pomp and their, their pride prevented them from even just going to Bethlehem just to check. And it was just 10 kilometers down the road, friends. 10 kilometers. We need to be careful that we don't become puffed up like the wise men. Pardon me, like the scribes and the Pharisees. We got to be careful that we don't get all prideful because we have some sort of religious knowledge. We are Seventh-day Adventist Church, born out of the pages of prophecy. We are the ones with the truth. We are the ones that have the three angels' messages. We are the ones that are preaching the gospel to the whole world. We are one of the biggest churches in the whole world. We are a global church. We are the ones with the true interpretation of Daniel and Revelation. We are a people of the book. We are the ones that have a prophet in our midst that is a true prophet that tells us about the end times. Surely, we can't learn anything from anyone else, can we? Oh, friends, it's easy to get puffed up. It's easy to be proud that you think you're in the right church, worshipping on the right day, doing what God wants, and here comes a heathen person trying to teach you something about the Scriptures that you ought to know already. It's possible, friends that we can be like the Pharisees and the scribes. Look, I'm not saying that we should go to other religions and go learn from them. We should focus our attention on the Bible and the Bible only. You remember as we studied last night, the Pharisees, they weren't really searching the Scriptures. They were repeating and quoting tradition all the time. We shouldn't be going to the, 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 the other religions of, of Buddhism or, or Muslim or whatever other religions that are out there to go study their, th their, their books and their writings thinking that there is some wisdom in them. No, friends, we got to make sure that we are focusing on the Bible and the Bible only. But we are not the only ones being guided by God. The wise men turned their attention to the Bible to read it and to study it even though they were from other religions. And so this group of scribes and Pharisees got puffed up in their own estimation of themselves, allowed pride to get in the way of them even going down the road to check if truly the Messiah had been born today, that time, in Bethlehem. 
if we are modern Israel, could it be that Jesus has passed by the Adventist church to bring light to someone else who is hungering and thirsting after the truth more than those that were in the church itself? It's possible. Are there people that are worried more about the state of the world than the Adventist church? Most likely. Are there people out there that care more for the homeless and the sick than the Seventh-day Adventist church? Probably. Are there people out there that could be non-SDA that are studying the scriptures more intensely than those themselves that call themselves Christians? Absolutely. And this group is represented by the scribes and the Pharisees who had a lot of knowledge but yet never moved on. The wise men came in with a little. They came in. They were not Christian. They were not people of the book. And yet, God was guiding them. The Bible scholars of that time knew the answer to the question. They knew that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But their knowledge condemned them all the more because they did nothing about the truth that they knew. Friends, what are you doing about the truth that you know today? Has God given you light? Has God given you guidance? Or is it just head knowledge and not transforming knowledge? Do you have faith that is simple enough to move you forward even though you don't see 100% clearly? For everyone that is too busy to join the search for Jesus, C.S. Lewis wrote these words. Look at this. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find Him with, and with Him everything else thrown in. You know, friends, Jesus stands at the end of life's road for all of us. There's no such thing as middle ground. To ignore Him is the same as hating Him because you end up without Him either way. Herod hated Him. The priests and the scribes, they ignored Him. And perhaps hating Jesus is better because at least you have to pay attention to the object of your hatred and that that attention may lead you one day to end up loving Him instead. But to ignore Jesus altogether means to live life as if He does not exist. You know, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4, the Bible asks this question that only we can answer. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him? You see that word neglect there, friends, that's underlined? It's the same as ignore. They say that majority of marriages that break up, that end up in divorce, is not because a husband is beating the wife or because of fornication or infidelity or, or you know, adultery. It's because of ignoring. They're in the same house together. They're there sharing the same room and the same bed, but they're ignoring each other. They have their own lives. And many of us, we have Christ in our life. He's right there. He has a room in our heart. We have the Bible in our home. But yet many of us are going throughout our life as if He 
does not exist. And friends, you can only ignore him for so long because we will all have an appointment with Christ sooner or later. All of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so the ultimate question is not how someone else responds to you. But the question that I have this morning to you is how are you responding to Jesus Christ, our King, our Lord, and our Saviour? That's the only thing that really matters. Are you with Herod or with the Pharisees and scribes or are you with the wise men? Are you hostile to Jesus like Herod? Or are you too busy or proud to get involved like the scribes and the Pharisees? Or are you coming to worship Him as your Saviour and Lord of life today? Is Jesus your all in all? Is He the apple of your eye? Is He the fairest of 10,000? Is He the rose of Sharon? Is He the first, the last and the best? Is He the object of all your affection? And if not, then I want you to pray this prayer with me this Christmas season. I want you to pray this simple prayer, especially during this time. A simple prayer to simply say what? O Lord, make my heart a manger where the Christ child can be born. You know, friends, many of us, we need this prayer today. Perhaps we've been very religious and no doubt many do believe in Jesus. But for some of us, that belief has never led to a moment of personal commitment and full surrender. He's just part of what you do. He's not your all in all. He's not living your life. He's just a part of your life. And it's possible that even during this festive time where we're meant to celebrate the birth of Christ and be reminded of life and self, that self is alive, that self is king, that we're all thinking about, all that we're thinking about during this time is self. My presence, my food, my time, my holiday, my travels. And so friends, today I want you to pause. And this is an invitation from the Lord to you to open up your heart, to let go of your doubts and your fears, to give up your anger or bitterness, to let go of the things that chain you to this world, your life, your work, your games, your money, your career, your studies. That's just too much, friends. And all I want you to say is this simple prayer. O Lord, make my heart a manger where the Christ child can be born. Friends, those words will change your life today. Christ never turns away from any heart that is open to Him. He's the one that's knocking on the door of our hearts in Revelation chapter 3 saying, let me in. I want to come and sup with you. He's the one that's walking with us on the road to Emmaus without us even realizing it. And He pretends to go on to see if we want Him to actually stay or not. He's waiting for you and me. He's the one that's seeking after us, but He's not going to force Himself upon us, except that we're willing to say that prayer. Oh Lord, make my heart a manger where the Christ child can be born. Yes, a manger. A manger that 
seems such a nice word, but it was just a feeding trough for animals. Dirty, despised, hardly thought of, and never maintained. That's our lives, friends. But Christ was born in the manger, and He wants to be born in you today. But we got to be willing to say that prayer, friends. we got to be willing to give Him a chance. we got to be willing to test Him, to taste Him, to be willing to let Him to come in. And may that be your experience during these festive times, that during these holidays, we would be found drawing still closer and closer to Christ. You know, holidays too often are those times where we let go of our routine, that we let go of our habits, and especially one of the first habits to go is our personal devotion and walk with Christ. I pray that in this coming week between Christmas and New Year's, we would have an even deeper relationship with Christ, that we'll be willing to say, O Lord, make my heart a manger where the Christ child can be born. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, Lord, even this festive season where it's meant to be all about you, we still focus on ourselves. We still focus on our own lives. And I pray that you would please help us just to turn our gaze away from our own self, that we won't be proud in our own estimation, even of the truth that we know, but that we would be willing to be guided by you that we would look to you, that we would follow that star, that we would allow you to be born in each and every one of us. Lord, help us just to pause today and not think about ourselves, but how we can be a blessing to others. Because heaven is so busy, even on the Sabbath, when we are meant to be resting, you're busy ministering to us. You're busy pouring out your blessings upon us. Father, please, Help us even then to be a blessing as well. Guide us, Lord. Fill us with your Spirit. And Lord, help us that our hearts would be a manger where the Christ child can be born today. This is our earnest plea and prayer. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.